Hey, good morning, Harvest family. It is so great to be with you this morning. I uh, hope and trust that you and your family had a wonderful time celebrating Christmas in whatever way you were able to celebrate it over these past few days. And it is great for us to be uh, back together again this morning. I, I must confess that when I uh, was scheduled to preach for this week and the next week, I was super, super excited to have the chance to preach to you in person. Again, after the first lockdown, I had a chance to go to a couple different churches and uh, preach to people in person. And those were great times for sure, a blessing, of course. But it just made me long for the chance to be back at home with my people and to preach to you in person again. And then, of course, we made the plan to have this week be live stream, of course, to give our staff and production teams a week off, and that's a valuable thing for sure. That's good. I had the next week, which is uh, the week following this one, to be able to hope and look forward to. Uh, but then, of course, lockdown 2.0 came and uh, destroyed any hope I had of that. You know, it was Martin Lloyd-Jones who, who said, it's one thing to love preaching, it's another thing to love those to whom you preach and uh they say also that absence make the, makes the heart grow fonder, and I cannot wait, church family, to be able to preach to you in person again. I will play the world's smallest violin for myself here this morning as I stand in an empty room and preach to a camera, but I am grateful for the chance that we have to be able to gather in this way for technology and for our amazing production team who work incredibly hard to be able to give us a chance to worship and open up God's word in this way. And so enough from me. Let's do what God has for us this morning. Get your Bibles and get them open to Philippians chapter two as we jump back into our series in Philippians called Joy Unleashed, looking at what it means to unleash the supernatural delight of God in our lives. And I'm excited for the passage that God has in store for us this morning. You know, it's often been said, uh, never meet your heroes because they are sure to disappoint you. I don't know if you have personal experience with that, but I remember uh, one instance of that in my own life as I had a chance to meet a Christian author that had particularly influenced my life. And of course, as I stood in line to have a chance to have a conversation with this guy, as I agonized over what it was I was going to say to him, and as excitement built as I got to the front of the line... I stepped up and sat down to have a conversation with this guy whose image I had in my mind as being a certain way, only to find out that who he was was not that way at all. The gentle and caring persona that came out so clearly in his writing was not who he was. And of course, we could give him the benefit of the doubt and, and grace would have us do so. Perhaps there was something else going on behind the scenes. But is it not true that we fall prey to elevating other people to a level higher than they should be in our lives. We hear these stories often. You can read them online and you can cringe at, at hearing of the fall from grace that celebrities have in the eyes of their fans. But it is a stark reminder for us of the danger of elevating sinful, fallen human beings to the level of hero in our lives. It's doomed to fail every time. As has certainly been the case seeing the wake of destruction that has been left by so many failed Christian leaders as of late. See, the reality is there's only one example worth following. There's only one hero of our story, and that is Jesus Christ himself. Now, definitely, having mentors and people that can speak into our lives and have influence and impact are important, but only those who point us to the right thing, rather the right person, Jesus himself. And it should be that we seek to be people and surround ourselves with people who exemplify what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. 
Be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. Jesus' example is the only one worth following in our lives. And as we'll see from our passage this morning, that example compels us to a life of joyful obedience. The passage that the Lord has before us this morning is an especially timely one, given all that we've been celebrating over the past few weeks and, and certainly days. It's one that is particularly magnificent and one, if I could be honest, is, brings a, a fair amount of inadequacy to my heart and to my mind as we jump into these amazing mysteries of the person and work of Jesus. So before we dive into this passage, allow me to pray for us as we humble ourselves before God's word this morning. Father, we thank you for this time. God, we in this moment humble ourselves before you, recognizing that you are sovereign. You are a God who is in complete control, being outside of time and having an intimate knowledge of all that is to come in our lives. And God, we thank you not only for the preservation of your word, that we may have it and hold it in our hands and see into your very face this morning, but God, we thank you for the person and work of Jesus who not only enacted a way for us to have our relationship with you restored, but gave us the perfect example of how to live in this life for your glory. And so we pray, Father, as we look into your word, that you would speak clearly into our hearts and lives, that, Father, you would break down the walls of hostility that exist between us and you, that you would bring the areas of our lives that are far from you to our minds, and God, that you would do a work in our lives by your spirit through your word so that we may know you better so that we may see you clearer, so we may follow you closer than we ever have before. So thank you for this time, Father. Be glorified in all of it, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. These are God's words to us this morning. Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So you see, Christ's example compels me to a life of joyful obedience. And if that is going to be the case for us, see this first, I humbly accept God's plan and purposes. As I mentioned before, these verses are so magnificent and they give us such a high view of the wonder and majesty of the incarnation, of the coming to this earth of Jesus Christ and what that means for us. Take a look back at verse 5 for a moment. Have this mind among yourselves, Paul writes, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So you see, Paul draws a, a line of thought into our passage this morning from the first four verses of chapter 2, in which he unpacks the humble unity that ought to exist in the church of Jesus Christ. The you-before-me mindset that ought to characterize any believer who has a claim to be a part of the body of Christ. See, the reality is, if, if the work of Jesus Christ is alive in you, if his sacrifice 
has dealt perfectly with your sins, and he has brought you to newness of life, then unity in the body of Jesus Christ is your end game. And here's why. Verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. You see, before Jesus came to this earth to fulfill the redemptive plan that God had put in place for all mankind in his pre-incarnate form, Jesus, as a member of the Trinity, the triune, three-in-one Godhead, as we understand it, he held all of the glory and the holiness and the honor and all of the qualities and characteristics that came from his position. He was eternal. He was pre-existent, as John chapter 1, verse 1 so clearly says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And then just a little, a little later on in, in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You see, in the ultimate act of humility, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, surrendered his throne in all of its glory to be born in this world, which he created, to be subject to the ways of this earth that he formed and to the rules and the rulers that he set up so that the plan and purposes of the Father may be completed. But the wonder of Jesus' incarnation is that while he took on the the fullness of man in, in flesh and bone, he was also fully God. You see, it's not that in coming to this earth, Jesus abandoned his deity, but it is that his fullness of, of his deity existed in human form. And he could have, at any point in time throughout his time in this earth, leveraged that power and that glory for his own selfish gain. The phrase that Paul uses at the, the back half of verse 6 in saying that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped does not refer to the fact that in taking human form, Jesus somehow abandoned his equality with God. It is that he was equal in form to God, but this does refer to the fact that he did not use his status, his status for selfish reasons. The NIV translation of, of verses 5 and 6 are helpful in understanding what these verses mean. Jesus, who was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. See, in the stories of, of Greek and, and Roman mythology, which the Philippian believers would have had experience with, we see all kinds of tales of the small g gods utilizing their power and their authority for their own advantage, for their own self-advancement. But this was not the case for the Son of God. Satan, in fact, tried to get him to do just this and misuse his power for selfish reasons as he wandered in the wilderness in the days after his baptism. But Jesus knew what he was here to do. And he knew that doing anything in his own benefit would violate the purpose of his incarnation. It would nullify his humanity and destroy his claim to be the one in whom salvation can be found, to be the perfect, sufficient sacrifice on our behalf. It would be to, out, to act outside of the plans and the purposes of God the Father. 
Jesus' coming to this earth was in every way the perfect act of humble, selfless obedience in accepting God's plan. And the example that Jesus sets for us in doing this is the definitive response and the crushing blow to our own pride. Because really, there's no greater con- contrast between the, the, f- the fallenness of humanity and the, and the glory of God than exists in the lives of Adam and Jesus. Adam, of course, the first man ever created, in walking with God in, in perfect relationship and in his presence, he sought to take what was not his in seeking to be like God that he may gain what he did not deserve. And as a result, Adam initiated death for all mankind. But Jesus abandoned what was rightfully his so that we may gain what we did not deserve. And as a result, he became the way that mankind may receive life as Explicitly said in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, For as in Adam all die, so as in Christ shall all be made alive. See, Jesus knew what his purpose was in coming to this earth. He knew what he was sent here to do. It was was to endure the ultimate humiliation so that the glorious plan of the Father put in place before the foundation of the world might be accomplished. And herein lies the root of all of our sin. In pridefully believing that we should have the place of God in our lives. That we should be in control. This is the beginning of disunity in the church. It is the beginning of the failings of those in church leadership. It is the beginning of discord in our relationships of adultery, of pornography, of gossip, of lies, and so much more. All of it stems from a place of believing that our selfish needs and wants triumph over God's plans and purposes in our lives. You see, the temptations of our flesh and the pleasures of this world are appealing to our eyes and they lay crouching at our doorstep. And the decision that we must make daily, if not on a moment-by-moment basis, is whether or not we will humble ourselves to accept God's purposes or give in to our own pride. And to make those small concessions to temptation, which give birth to sin, in our thoughts, in our words, and in our actions and decisions. This week I was sent an article to a commentary written by J.C. Ryle, who was an Anglican bishop back in the 19th century. And he wrote on three of the most chilling words that Jesus ever spoke. Words that I personally have breezed over in my reading of the Gospel of Luke all too often. Perhaps you have as well. In Luke 17, 32, Jesus says, Remember Lot's wife. Now, for any 
good Bible reader, the story of Lot is one that you're familiar with. Genesis chapter 19, as God delivers Lot and his family from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and as he leads them out of the city, he gives them one commandment. Don't look back. Don't look back on the destruction and the burning of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, which of course is exactly what Lot's wife does. And in that very moment, she's turned into a pillar of salt and dies. In his commentary, which Ryle wrote decades ago, but is remarkably applicable today, he says, But I do urge every professing Christian who wishes to be happy the immense importance of making no compromise between God and the world. Do not try to drive a hard bargain as if you wanted to give Christ as little of your heart possible and to keep as much as possible of the things of this life. Beware, lest you overreach yourself and end by losing all. Love Christ with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. Seek first the kingdom of God and believe that then all other things shall be added to you. Take heed that you do not prove a copy of the character John Bunyan draws, Mr. Facing Both Ways. For your happiness' sake, for your usefulness' sake, for your safety's sake, for your soul's sake, beware the sin of Lot's wife. Oh, it is a solemn saying of our Lord Jesus, No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. See, we can't have it both ways. You're either in or you're out. You're either for this world or you are for the things of Jesus Christ. The example of Christ compels us to humbly accept the plans and the purposes of God, to take up the mantle that he has left for us and to champion in every aspect his cause to forsake my prideful sense of entitlement, the ways of our sinfulness and the pleasures of this world, and to see this next, unselfishly surrender to his will. Look back at verse 7 and 8 for a moment. Jesus, of course, not counting equality, a God, a equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, Jesus, of course, fully God, pre-existent, eternal, as we've established already, he emptied himself of his status and privilege, as the King James Version so aptly points out, saying that he made himself of no reputation to take the form of a slave. The Greek word for the word servant that we read in this verse is, is often talked about. It's the Greek word doulos, which describes someone who is completely subject to someone else, right up into the point of forsaking even the basic human rights and dignities. Jesus unselfishly abandoned all of his glory to be born into the likeness of men. Now take note here, this does not mean that Jesus is exactly the same as us. He was, of course, in fullness of human form, yet lived without sin. He appeared as a man, he experienced all that we do as human beings, 
but did not sin. As Hebrews 4.15 points out, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in every respect, who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. See, he could be our great high priest who could be our representative before God the Father, interceding on our behalf because he experienced and understands our condition. He was tempted in every way, the same way that we are to sin. He experienced the emotional roller coaster of our lives, and yet he did not succumb to temptation as we so often do. See, he experienced everything that we do in this life, but there is one thing that Jesus had to experience in order to fully identify with us, and that was he needed to die. And not only did he experience death, but he experienced death in the most humiliating way possible. See, the cross was designed to give the accused no chance of dignity. And in a culture back then that prioritized prestige, respectability, and public appearance, the cross was designed to degrade destroy and demean those who experienced it to give them no hope of passing from this life with their head held high and this was the will of god for his son this was the way that our sins the offenses against god that we commit would be perfectly and sufficiently dealt with This would be a way that our salvation and the restoring of our relationship with God could be enacted. This was the way that the love of our God would be perfectly displayed. You see, this kind of surrender that Jesus took on our behalf completely contrasts that with the world's ideals. Our sinful way of thinking is to seek our own advantage, whatever it takes. I don't care who I have to step on or or what I have to step on to get to where I want to be. I'm going to do it. Or as David Garland writes in his commentary, the wisdom of the cross serves others no matter what it costs. As God, Christ poured himself out. And as human, he humbled himself and allowed himself to be humiliated. See, in perfect submission to the will of the Father, Jesus did what we in our sinful selves would never do. Submitting entirely and surrendering completely to the will of another. We have officially, I can say, reached the stage in our home of the testing of wills, might I say, with our daughter Annie. And uh, it might come to a shock, come as a shock to some of you, but uh, Annie is pretty strong-willed. No idea where that comes from, right? Shocker, of course. But you see, getting out the door at any point in time is uh, proving to be more and more difficult. And while, you know, getting uh, our coat and our boots on is a relatively simple task, doing so while holding every single book we own and every single stuffed animal we own is is a little bit more difficult. And there are even sometimes when uh, those stuffed animals and those books need to stay behind 
because, you know, we can't bring them with us to play in the snow, and, and that, that is just not even an option. Thankfully, uh, those times are becoming fewer and fewer, or so it seems to me that might just be my own delusional denial. But you see, while we often want the blessings of God and the joy that comes from Him, the relatively simple act of surrender becomes increasingly more difficult as we hold on tightly to the things that we think that we need. God, I know that I'm supposed to give my money to those in need and to care for the marginalized, but, I mean, they're not working at all, and I've worked so hard for this money, why would I give that to them? God, I know that I'm, I'm supposed to, to serve, but, I mean, I only get two days off a week, and I'd really, really like to sleep in on a Sunday. Meanwhile, what time did you go to bed last night? God, I know that you tell me dating an unbeliever is, is a bad idea, but, but she makes me feel so good, or, or he's like super hot, so... Or how about this one? God, I know you tell me to love my neighbor, but I really don't like wearing a mask. God, I know you call me to share the gospel with my neighbors, but I really don't want to put a lawn sign uh, on my lawn. I, I really don't want to ruin the relationship and make things awkward, so I'm just not going to do it. I'm just not going to say anything at all. God, I know you tell me not to be intoxicated, but I can't have fun without drugs or alcohol. Did I hit your thing? If I didn't, you and I both know that it's easy for you to insert whatever it is that you have going on in your life into that phrase. You see, understanding the extent of Jesus' selfless surrender helps us to see how we should be responding to God's plans and purposes in our lives. And while the application of God's will for our lives might look different based on our giftings or our passions, the will of God that is consistent for every believer is plain to see. In fact, it's expressed simply and explicitly in Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, when Jesus calls us to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. To have the fruit, the evidence of our faith, the believing the things that are true about God, prove the reality of the faith, the faith that lives inside of us. That the understanding of who Jesus is would result in actions, in decisions, in thoughts that confirm the reality of our faith as we engage daily in the act of repentance, an act that has four very important steps. When it comes to repentance, we need to first acknowledge the existence of sin in our lives. You need to acknowledge your sin. You need to recognize that it exists in your life. Or, if you're not a particularly self-aware person, you need to surround yourself with people who are going to be able to call out that sin in your life, lovingly, of course, so you can understand that it exists. And then secondly, you need to confess your sin. You need to bring it to God and confess it to Him, as the act of confessing your sin before God helps you to agree with him about the reality of your sin and recognizing what it truly is as an offense against him. Third, you need to ask for forgiveness. Pray that God would forgive you from your sin. 
surrendering it to Jesus to deal with completely, which we know he has done perfectly. Thank you, God. And then lastly, and almost most importantly, you need to turn away from your sin. You need to diagnose your problem to see what the Bible prescribes instead, and then to administer a healthy dosage of what God calls you to, to your life. We often describe this process as making a 180 degree turn, going from the way that you once walked in your sinfulness, turning around completely to the way that God desires you to, and instead walking in that, not just facing that way, but walking in that way. As you move yourself back to the ways and the will of God. And if we are to live in the will of God and to do the things that he calls us to, to humbly surrender selflessly to what it is that he desires to do in our lives, repentance ought to be a daily occurrence. And it must entail all four aspects of it in order for it to be complete. Because you see, surrendering to the will of God means knowing what it is that he calls you to do and then actually doing it. Actually choosing to respond the way that God calls you to. To not engage in that conversation or to allow that person influence into your life. To not allow yourself to go to that place in your thought life or to make that action or to do that thing or to say those things when no one's around. It is saying, just as Jesus did in Luke twenty-two forty-two, as the cross loomed just ahead of him. Not my will, but yours be done, O Lord. It's a process that we engage in on a daily basis. See this last, so that he gets all the glory in my life. Verse 9. Therefore, as a result of the selfless sacrifice and the humbling of Jesus in pouring himself out, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. After all that Jesus endured in his humanity, God exalts him to all of the glory that is innate in his being, plus so much more. And that resulted from his obedience to the plans and to the purpose of God. You see, this idea of, of God exalting those who humble themselves is a, is a concept that Jesus taught explicitly as he walked this earth and is one that has been continued to be taught throughout the Christian understanding. Matthew 18, 4, Jesus said in response to his disciples, asking him who is the greatest, he said, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. A little later on in Matthew 23, 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. See, this is the case as the Father bestows blessing and honor on his faithful resurrected Son, giving him the title and the authority that is rightfully his, not a title of higher authority or of position of greater glory than the Father, but elevating the Son as highly as possible as he takes his seat at the right hand of the throne of God as Savior and Lord. We see then that Paul changes gears to give us an image of the future glory that will be Jesus's at his second coming in verse 10. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, the time will come when at the complete exaltation of Jesus, every knee will bow. When all will realize, whether they believe in him or not, that he is Lord. When at the second coming, as he bursts through the clouds, the phrase, Jesus Christ is Lord, will be on every lip. On the lips of all who see him coming, riding on the white horse. It's a confession that will bring about the long-awaited promise for those who have humbled themselves before him. And it will bring the doom of those who have denied him. But when that time comes, even as all creation, as all that is in heaven and on earth and under the earth, is subject to Jesus as has been given to him, Jesus will continue to exemplify the kind of service that we ought to live our lives with. In that he, in all of his exaltation, continues to give glory to God the Father. You see, the daily battle that we are in in this life is of the utmost importance. And unfortunately, many Christians have fallen prey to pursuing the immediate gratification of the praise of this world while forsaking the pursuit of righteousness for the glory of God the Father. For many of them, it started with one relatively little decision here, one little concession there, but led faster than they could realize to a forsaking of the truth. See, in, it's in this promise of what is to come that the joy of obedience can be fully realized. Where we can understand the implications of Christ's coming, of his humility, of his selfless sacrifice on our behalf, as we see the love of God on full display in his person and in his work. It is here that we can see just how much we are valued, how much we are cared for, and how we are freed to walk in the ways of Jesus. See, the joy in obedience comes when we recognize and when we choose him and his ways daily. It comes as we walk in the footsteps of our Savior. And just as God exalted the humility of his servant son, so also we have the promise of receiving the prize when our race is done. When we have endured, when we have continued to choose faithfulness and humble obedience joyfully in all things to Jesus. And that prize, we have the opportunity of laying at the feet of God bring him the glory that he alone is due, as is perfectly exemplified in Jesus Christ. See, it's in the recognition of what is to come that we see the value of humble, sacrificial commitment to living for the glory of God. Christ's example, even as he pointed to God the Father while receiving the honor that he was rightfully due, 
helps us to see our need to live in his perfect example as it has been given to us. Because our entire lives are meant for one thing, the glory of God the Father. In all that we do, say, think, and in all that we act upon and for, it should be for God's glory. As it was for Jesus, so it should be for us. And as we live our lives here with the promise of what is to come, the, the example of Jesus should be in the forefront of our minds in every decision, in every moment. He is the hero of our story. Not just for the moment that we come to the knowledge of his saving grace and to the realization of forgiveness, but in every day, in every moment, for our continued joyful obedience in hopeful recognition of who he is and what he has done and what he will do to the glory of God the Father. And so as we wrap up this message and in the days to come, as we see the end of this year, as we look toward the blank slate of 2021 and the days, weeks, and months that will come, what will you do with Christ's example? Whose glory will you pursue? Time is coming when we will be called to account for all that we have done with the counsel of God in the person and work of Jesus. Joyful obedience ought to be the result of following the example of the faithful, humble, and selfless Son of God the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and who is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for the abundant grace and mercy that you pour out in our lives, for the ways that you have worked miraculously in us to not just bring us to a knowledge of your saving grace and to a restored relationship with you through the person and work of Jesus, but in the way that you continue the work in us day by day to make us more into his image. Forgive us, Father, for the ways that we have pridefully sought to chart our own course, to give in to the temptations to sin and the pleasures of this world and our sinful flesh the ways that we have elevated ourselves and others to the place that you deserve alone in our lives. And so I pray, God, for those who are here this morning who have come to the realization of sin that is separating them from a closeness with you that they in their hearts truly desire. God, I pray that you would be moving them to a place of repentance, that they would see God, the importance of what it is to live in humble obedience with you and to choose selfless sacrifice of self on a daily, if not moment-by-moment -moment basis. God, may you ignite a passion in us to pursue you, living consistent with your word and your commands for our lives in every aspect. And God, I pray for those here who have not yet come to a realization of the salvation that you offer to them in this moment. 
God, I pray that the example of Jesus and his humility would stir up in them a love for you and a passion for you that they have not realized before. That they would put their faith in you for forgiveness and for salvation, understanding that the time will come that Jesus comes back and you bring about the end of days. And it's in that moment that what we do with you here and now and the decision that we make will be secured. So God, I pray for those hearts who are far from you, those who have not come to saving faith. Would you bring about their salvation in this moment? God, for all of us, as the end of another year and the beginning of another draws near, I pray, God, that this year would be marked with a greater dependence, a greater passion, a greater commitment to living our lives in joyful obedience. And God, as we seek to obey, you would bring about joy in our lives as we live in step with you. We thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace and patience with us as we seek to do all of these things for your glory. Take it all, Father, we pray. Make that the end game of all that we do. In Jesus' precious name, we pray these things. Amen.